podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Reninka, we have former New Zealand Into the Wind bowler Ian O'Brien, who has had a fascinating career. Ian O'Brien, specialist pace bowling coach for Cricket Wellington, covering both the men's and women's teams. In this chat, we talk about being a late bloomer, the New Zealand player strike, being an into the wind bowler, mental health, coaching, and how a misunderstanding over Watson Watson against Scotland ended his T20 international career. I'm sure you've told this story a lot, but it's one of my favorite stories in cricket. And I always misremember the details because you told me years ago, probably in a pub or a burger place. Can you tell me about the time that you played against Scotland, which might have been your last international game? (laughs) Uh, Could you take me through the details? You had a bowling plan. I'll let you take off from there. Yeah, so we were very well scouted. This is the 2009 World T20 opening day. We had Scotland horrifically rain affected. It went down to... Oh, a seven over game, I think it was. Yeah, it was seven or nine. It was really small, wasn't it? it was a, uh, yeah, so like an S7. And so we had huge notes in for the Scotland team because our coach at the time, Andy Moles, was, um, he was a previous Scotland coach. So we had some uh, fantastic plans and, and notes. I don't have a great memory when it comes to, to remembering those sort of things. So I um, cut the lid off an um, uh, ice cream container, cut the plastic out, uh, Sharpie pen marked it down and just put, um, initials and then what the bowling plan was and so we bowled first and I bowled the first over in the game and I could not and I genuinely mean this it's probably the best over I have ever bowled in terms of bowling to a plan in terms of knowing what the plan was and nailing all six balls I don't know if I've bowled a better to the plan over the problem being was that there was a Watts and a Watson in the Scotland team. And one of them would normally open and one of them would normally bat seven. And just so happened that the opener wasn't opening and the batsman that was normally seven was opening. And it just so happens that the bowling plans to uh, each of them were virtually the opposite. So <laughs> don't bowl forward to one of them and don't bowl short to the other. And um, I nailed that plan seriously nailed the plan and got hurt and then didn't play another T20 for New Zealand again after that. Even admitting my mistake, if you like, I was disappointed that it wasn't taken into consideration that no one else in the team piped up and said, oi, have <laughs> you got the plan right? And also a little bit disappointed that it wasn't taken into consideration. I absolutely nailed the over in terms of what the plan was. I absolutely nailed it. So never mind. Yeah, good fun tournament, but um, sadly, uh, we couldn't get past Umar Ghul reversing it in the fifth over in the semi-final. <laughs> uh, Umar Ghul. That was a serious bowling spell. And uh, I watched him, and I worked out how to do it. Very, very clever. But you didn't get another chance to do it, though. You were gone by that point, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the T20 stuff, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I still played um, a couple of one-dayers and, and a few more test matches um, after that, but... Uh, I went back to Leicestershire and played for the Foxes. So, you know, all was wonderful. I'm going to start with your career. I'm trying to remember all the details, right? You made your first class debut when you were 24 or 25. Is that right? 24 and a half, yeah. 
Explain to me why you were such a late bloomer, other than, you know, puberty or, you know, just your own life. Do you know what? I've actually thought about this. I always feel like I'm about five years behind everybody anyway. Like even just like maturity and what jokes are funny and, and what things you're supposed to say in the right time. And so maybe I'm just a, you know, a little bit five years behind everybody. But I just played cricket because I loved it. I didn't really play with any ambition of playing domestically or even really internationally. The season before I did play, I knew I was getting close, but it wasn't a motivator. I was just enjoying playing cricket and it was something that I was doing okay at. I was swinging the ball and I was taking some wickets and and I was playing with a couple of teams with some decent people that were a bit older and and so you're always looking up to them and what and sort of trying to impress them. And I got university done as well. So that was kind of one of those blessing things. I got my education done before cricket sort of got in the way of a working life. But I mean, I played softball until I got to college and I was just an okay cricket. I could bat, I could bowl. Everyone can bat a bowl at, at that age though. And then I still do it to this day. I still thank the guys that I used to play with that were better than me. I still thank them for giving up because <laughs> I wouldn't have had a career had these guys not have given up. And I guess that was my secret. I just didn't stop playing. I played a lot of indoor cricket. I lived around the corner from indoor cricket centre, so I played a lot of cricket, and I did love it. It was something I was I was okay at, and I just stuck at it for a lot longer than like a lot of the guys around me. And when everyone starts falling away, there's fewer numbers. And like my test debut, there wasn't too many fit bowlers in the country. So you sort of, in the same way, you you, you sort of rise up the ranks. So it was, a, it was a longevity thing, I think, got me into the Wellington team and then got me further, just sticking at it and, and getting better over the course of those extended playing time. You mentioned indoor cricket. You played indoor cricket for New Zealand as well, didn't you? Other than the fact that, well, the ball swings like crazy, you would have been absolutely impossible to bat to, let alone keep to, I would have thought, especially at your pace. But because there was a couple of guys, did Chris Harris might have played both for New Zealand yeah. as well? So was that a, like a, a pathway in any way or was it they almost completely separate? No, they are completely separate. The transfer from indoor cricket into outdoor for me was that off the short run-up in indoor, I could bowl pretty much the same as I could in outdoor. Give or take a, a couple and, and also give or take the density variation of the indoor ball versus the outdoor ball. So I did learn to bowl quick off a short run-up. You had to have a couple of slowable variations, and so you did have to learn those things. But they are very different games, but it's still cricket. It's like men's cricket compared to women's cricket. They're two very different games, but they're still cricket and they still have their appeal from both sides. And so indoor to me was just another way of playing cricket. And yeah, it, it sort of did all right in that, but outdoor cricketers despise indoor cricketers. And I know why, because <laughs> indoor cricketers are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> idiots. <laughs> uh, well, my memories of playing a lot of indoor cricket is just tearing my knee regularly every time I played it. So that was my biggest problem. Yeah, volleyball knee pads was the secret to that. Oh, no, no. I mean, actually tearing the medial and the, like, if I wasn't oh. wicket keeping, I would twist weird because you start to go one direction, yeah. the ball hits the net and you go the other. And my body's not made yeah. for any sport, really, but certainly not for that particular mo movement. You're a bit more agile now, though, aren't you? Well, to be fair, I was, I was agile back then. That was the problem. Had I been in my overweight <laughs> phase, I probably wouldn't have been able to move and do my knees. <laughs> I'm committed to going that way. It's <laughs> fine. I don't have to turn around. Yeah. How does the into the wind bowling thing happen? I know, obviously, Wellington is the, the oh. windiest place on earth. So you chose to be an into-the-wind bowler in the worst place on earth, would be my guess. 
Yeah, I, look, I did get to bowl down. You know, like I didn't just have to bowl into it. One spell a day. <laughs> yeah, my last couple of overs, yeah. I say this knowing that at the time I was also thinking it was like, if you do a bad job really well, you're going to get paid quite good. And I realized that if I could suss this bowling into the wind, then I would have a place in this team because no one wants to do it. And so I, I did see that as an opportunity early. I did see that as a, um, as a way to, not to add value, but to make it something. And I just worked out how to do it. And I, and I think the indoor stuff helps because you do have to generate a, a lot of pace from, from not very much forward momentum. And so I sort of worked out, I didn't work out a way, it just happened. But then I realized what it was and, and then the, those things to concentrate on. It's a rubbish job, but we'll come back to this. Uh, but it was a way of impressing people as well. And the, my ego, and I've, I've spoken a bit about this, my ego was based on a lot about my results. And my ego was based on if I can have success, people will like me. If I can do something that they don't want to do, they might like me. If I can make someone else's day easier, they might like me. What a horrible way to, to live your life. And that sort of always trying to impress is tiring. But there were days that I do remember just like, I'll do this because they will be impressed and, and they'll give me a pat on the back at the end of the day. Like I said, that's not a great way of living, but that was part of the motivation. So would I change it? I don't know. It's a tough one. A lot of um, New Zealand cricketers look at Corey Anderson get thrust into first-class cricket at incredibly young ages. At the age of 24 and a half, that's really late to be a first-class cricketer in, in New Zealand, right? So not as much in maybe some other countries, but certainly in New Zealand. Really late in the UK, though, like 24 yeah, and a half. True. You're a league yeah. cricketer for life at 24 and a half. No, you're right, actually. There probably aren't many places in the world where you're starting that late regularly, mm. are you? Maybe in Pakistan, but then again, we don't know any of the ages there, so that's a completely different conversation. So in that particular case then, is that what you're trying to improve on? Like if you'd come through the system like a normal player and played underage cricket for New Zealand and hadn't played indoor cricket and been one of the boys, would you have still been trying to impress everyone and make everyone like you or would you have felt more confident? Is it part of you being this late cricketer that you felt like you had to really impress everyone? There was a, a real feeling of had I have done the age group stuff that I would have known these guys better because we would have been around each other a lot more. And I would have understood the dynamics, the hierarchy to an extent. I just came into it very unknown and had success quite quickly, domestically, first-class cricket. And I think that shocked a, a few people. And it also shocked in the way that they were missing out on games of cricket, where they didn't think they would be missing out on games of cricket. Being a 12th man sucks. And I think that there were some 12th men that were pretty frustrated that this bogan that could bowl okay sometimes was playing and they were running drinks and so I didn't understand it particularly well because I just played a bit of club cricket and stuff and so I don't think I would have come through the age group of things that's just you know like I said I was playing softball until I was 13 so the cricket if you're not in a school first team we didn't have a school first team we didn't have a cricket team and so there was no access to you know represent your school and play at that level so it was never going to happen. But I do think that there is some benefit to knowing how a team works. But at the same stage, you 
to still have success. And for me, it was just a very different kind of success. As your first-class career starts to go, New Zealand first-class cricket goes through a flux at the same time. As you become, I suppose, a regular for Wellington in, in that sort of time. Now, talk to me about the first-class cricket you entered. How amateur was first-class cricket in New Zealand back then? Because people don't really re- ever reference it. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on the podcast, because world number one, we had to go to the World Test Championship. People don't remember that 20 years ago, it was a shit show. Yeah, I didn't know any other way. Don't forget. But I I did walk into a Wellington environment, a team that was very good. Uh, There were some very, very good players and some some very good older players as well. And my first game, my debut match for Wellington, we came off for rain and I was frustrated. You know, I wanted to play cricket. And it was that game that I learned that now every first-class cricketer loves rain. You can't get injured and you still get paid <laughs> and you're probably going to play the next game. So rain became, a, um, I learned that it was a blessing and I found that very hard to understand and very hard to believe because we were there to play cricket. But then the naivety of we didn't get paid very much. I think, so I played nine first class matches and I made the equivalent of 3,000 pounds for the season. That's a lot of bowling into the wind. <laughs> So it was, I think it was like a thousand New Zealand per first class game, or eight hundred New Zealand per first class game back then. And so you had to have a, a second job. So we were all slightly semi, yeah, semi professional, if you like. And it meant you had to have a, a willing employer, and you had to be a employee that would take work on the road as well and, and answer your phone when you could. So it was very semi professional, and it was. You had to try and get the trainings, which are in the middle of the day. So when you're not traveling, you're hitting off the training in the middle of the day. So it was a pretty tough balance. And then you tried to add in rest as well and work. And it wasn't really working. So there was only match payments at the time. There were no retainer plus commission. There was It was just a straight match payment, sort of a you know straight commission for, um, for playing. So there was no, no security at all. But there was security because you had a full-time job. Well, yeah, you had a job. So there's this weird crossover point where it goes from semi-professional where you care a lot about it, but you do have a backup. Yeah. To then going into being professional, but you don't have a backup. And that was when I sort of joined the scene. And yeah, it was pretty interesting. The start of my second season was quite a strange one. So what happened specifically? I'm assuming it's Heath Mills, Kyle Mills's. Right, wait, have I got the Mills confused? No, no. I got that right, no, yeah. Right. So Kyle yeah. Mills was the bowler. Heath Mills was the person who got involved with the union. Is it him and other senior players going, this is not okay, we're not in a professional environment, we can't take this seriously, or it, was there a series of other flashpoints? There'd been talk about a, a players' union, you know, a players' association. I was very unaware of it being you know, such a, a low-down, on-the-need-to-know sort of level but two-thirds of the way through the off-season, there's become rumblings of players of trying to organise a union. So Rob Nicholl, uh, I think he was, uh, he was part of the original setup for the Rugby Union Players Association as well. So he helped, he came on board and helped. Each of the um, first-class teams, each of the six provinces had a couple of senior players who were then the liaisons between the teams. I was fortunate enough that we had Stephen Fleming and Chris Nevin as our sort of 
liaisons, our leaders, if you like. And it did end up where we went on strike, which is kind of strange because we weren't getting paid anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it wasn't like we were, had a retainer, you know, we had a we had some, sort of a contract, but we went on strike. And it got to the point where each association, each province actually started trying to split off people with a $1,000 check to try and pull people out of standing by and, and trying to get this overall players' agreement. And so they did pick off a few. And I completely understand why a few of them took the 1000 And now it's like, well, nothing happened to them and they still got to play that rest of that season. So it's like, I'm a $1,000 down for, for, for sticking with my mates. No. It didn't get nasty at any stage, but it, but it, there was a little bit of animosity. But what came out of it were contracts and match payments. Mm. And, you know, I went from one year to the next. Did I double or triple? When I say I doubled or tripled, you know, if there's two people there and you triple the crowd side, there's only six people there. So, so it wasn't, there was quite a dramatic increase in pay. It still wasn't professional by any means stretch. You still did need some secondary income, but we were now contracted by our provinces and with the 24 or 25% of New Zealand cricket income, which is about the number that is the, the same for, for all of the um, of the nation's boards that, that they pay the, into the players' pool. So it went to a, a whole players' agreement and it's only been good. And the things that um, the Players Association have done in New Zealand have been wonderful. And uh, I've also been pretty fortunate to have the Players Association in the UK there to help as well. So both of those have been great. But yeah, that was a, that was a strange time when you were just at that stage in my, in my life. I just was, I was happy just to play some cricket. That can't go on like that because you do need to get paid. Mm. And that, that person that says, I would have played for Wellington for free. Yeah, you would have. And I would have too for about three games. <laughs> And then you start getting some negative press and then you start realising that these injuries hurt. And then you start realising that you need some money. It would be about three games, I reckon, that most people would get to if they were in the employed situation that I was in. It. Well, you're not paying for free anyway because you're actually losing other money from your <laughs> yeah, job. Yeah. Like I remember you talk to women cricketers and they're like, yeah, I had a choice of playing cricket for my country or having a mortgage and I chose play cricket for my country and I don't regret it, but that's what yeah. it is. So it's almost a negative. So mm. how much did that change New Zealand cricket? Because at that point it wasn't that New Zealand weren't having good cricketers and there had been incredible professionals, guys like, you know, Glenn Turner and Richard Hadley who'd gone off and done brilliant things. They'd gone off and done brilliant things for themselves. Yeah. They brought those skills back to the New Zealand team, but it was a very, very different scenario if that makes sense. And, I, and I'm not saying they, that's not a, a, a me saying it was a selfish thing. They did some wonderful things for themselves that a lot of other people didn't have those opportunities to and, and awesome, well done them. Do you think New Zealand would be in the position it is now in international cricket if that had not happened? The catch-22 is that the expectation goes up in terms of performance because you're now a professional group of cricketers who are, are now training more professionally. So the expectation goes up when it hasn't really changed, if that makes sense, because you're still training, you're still going to the gym, you're still playing your cricket, but there is this higher expectation because we're getting paid this bit more. And so it was a real tough one, I think, for coaches because they were getting it in the neck from maybe the CEOs 
and were then passing that on into the players. I think it was a very tough transition for those relationships. And so there was a lot of maturing that had to be done. And it's there now, if that makes sense. And it's been there a while, but it took a long time for that process, the, the maturation, all that growing up. And I think now the, the players have still only got six-month contracts in New Zealand. The whole off-season is voluntary, if you like. But the remuneration is not bad. But it's still a tough one. But I think New Zealand cricket is in a, in a pretty good spot. I would still love that there would be two or three or maybe four more first-class games a year. I mean, we, New Zealand must have it right at the moment, but we've just got this genius generation of the New Zealand under-19 team that has just come all the way through. You know, you mentioned Corey Anderson, the, you know, in that team, the Trent Bolt, the Tim Southey, the uh, Kane Williamson, blessed that those guys all happened at one time. And, and I think when they go, it's, you know, New Zealand will have that lull again. The overall standard and the overall maturity of the place um, starting from NZC all the way down to the associations. I think it's a, um, and I'm not just saying this because I'm now employed by them, but it's a lot better environment that is a lot more caring, a lot more, I don't want to say pastoral, but there is a, a lot more care and attention involved in the players and their growth. You, after that, go on to play test cricket. Well, I played two of them, and they weren't too good. <laughs> and you had a very good career. I, I looked it up. Bowling average of 24 in the first innings. Bowling average of 30 away from home. So if you'd only mm. played away from home and bowled in the first innings, you would actually probably be one of the greats of all time. But obviously, you had a very good career. But one of the things that you talked about, I think, after your career was, and you, you hinted at it before, was the, the ego thing and the confidence thing. You wrote a big piece. I think uh, my memory was it was around the time that Kevin Peterson was getting a yep. lot of flack. Yep. And you, you wrote a big piece about how there's a big sort of crossover between people who don't feel very mm -hmm. confident and people who on the outside see them as arrogant. I remember having this conversation with an Australian cricketer about Cameron White. And he was telling me he's the most arrogant player in the world. And I said, look, I don't know him at all, but I've heard other people tell me he's just really insecure person yeah. and feels really uncomfortable. And your piece was very much like that. So take me through with all the sort of stuff that we've talked about so far, take me sort of through how you tried to deal with test cricket. Cause it's a whole different world to playing for Wellington. Well, yes, but also it was the same because in playing for Wellington, I held everyone in that changing room to this reverent, you know, they were all this high level of, I just wanted to be liked by them. And the same thing happens when you head to the New Zealand team, you know, a few of them because you've played against them going back because you don't know how to be nice to people because you don't have that ability so that you just shut off and you become that arrogant knobhead. And so it's not, it's the exact opposite, you know, what we were just talking about. And so a lot of, People had that impression that I was just this, yeah, I wasn't a particularly cool person or, you know, wasn't very nice and was a bit of a, just a bit of a dick. And I was, but it wasn't intentional. Like, the, the, look, that Kevin Peterson line, you know, it's hard being me in this change room, is exactly the right line. That line he got lambasted for, but that line is one of the most truths ever said by a player because sometimes it is just hard being you because who is you 
and how do you fit in when you don't know how to fit in, you've always got your guard up. And so therefore you're always relying on reflexes as opposed to responses. These are two words that I use a lot now and that the response has consideration and a reflex quite often isn't the first response. The first thing we do isn't necessarily the right one. And so when you're in that sort of scenario and you're, everything's flying because you're not comfortable, your interactions are not great. And so, I, yeah, I found it very difficult to have good conversations and, and have there's this thing, you know, about, about sitting in the changing room and, and talking about cricket and, you know, at the end of the day and the other, the other things that, you know, that most cricketers miss. That's the last thing I miss. I couldn't think of anything worse than sitting around the changing room. Now I think it would be great. But back then, I couldn't think of anything worse than sitting around in the changing room because I couldn't fit in, so I couldn't deal with it. And so then also aligning with that is then at the end of the day, you go back to your hotel or whatever, I'd go back to my room and sit by myself. And, and I'd, but the other guys would meet up, they'd go for, for, for a meal or they'd go back to someone's room and have some room service. And they have that chat where they can talk about their fallibilities. They can maybe talk about what scared them, what's going on. And I didn't get those. When I started writing the blogs, I realized that actually that's what I was doing. I was talking to a friend and enforced self-reflection and those blogs were the best things for my career in terms of my playing career. But it actually turned out that something I ended up doing because I was a bit bored was one of the best things I could have done because I didn't have any of those sorts of friendships with teammates in or around on tour or anything like that. So it was hard being me in the changing room, but that's what it was. And, you know, I sat on the sofas at, at uh, Jade Stadium at the end of day one and said to Craig McMillan, if that's test cricket, I'll take it. We had 380 on the board. No, sorry. We were on our way to 400. And I just had toasties and drank coffee all day. You know, <laughs> I think Conway's uh, thinking the same thing. If this is test cricket, cool. <laughs> he did a little bit more than I did. But um, yeah, it was hard. It was, it was horrible. But being out in the middle was freedom because I didn't have to talk to anybody. Thank you to the umpire. And then, can I bowl a bouncer? No. Can I bowl a bouncer? No. And then eventually Dan would let me bowl a bouncer. So I wish I had more fun memories, but I can now hopefully allow others to have more fun memories. You know, I want to be the person I wish was there for me in the change room now. That, that's a big part of what I outlined that I wanted this role to be about. And it's a big one for me, you know, looking after the person behind the player. Let's make some damn good cricketers, but also let's help those players be good people or just be people that they like and have good times, have some good memories. So, yeah, that's where a lot of my now philosophy comes from. It's just is through my own frustrations at myself that I can hopefully allow someone else to have a happier and healthier create a happier and healthier environment. So, um, you know, that's just what I can't wait to do. And I'm already having some good conversations with the coach, with the coaches about those sorts of things, because it's, it's something that, you know, as you know, it's, it's very near and dear to my heart, the whole headspace things, you know, we talk about mental health, but we forget about emotional health. You know, we have strength and conditioning coaches. We have some help with our sports psychology and, and a bit of mental health, but we, we never really, well, we never ever touch on emotions. 
And actually, emotions is the, the, the top bit of the umbrella. We can sort those out. Your mental skills, <laughs> a lot easier. And your physical skills, a lot easier. So a lot of what I want to do is help people understand their own emotions, understand their reflexes and turn them and allow them to respond, allow people to get better sleep. So all the filing system is complete and or vice versa, be able to file it all away so you can get your sleep. So yeah, if we could deal with our emotions and that's not something that is talked about, well, I've never heard it sort of talked about is I'd love people to have better grasp on their emotions. How many guys get out just after a hundred? You know, that sort of thing. And there is an emotional element to that. How many bowlers can't get to five wickets? They end up on four. There is an emotional element on those things. Being able to control those emotions allows you to then control the mental and the physical. So quite a wide area, but that whole psychology school is healthy. You know, some healthy players, some healthy people. You were one of the first cricketers I ever knew, professional cricketers I ever knew. And so for a long time, I kind of thought that you were what cricketers were like. <laughs> Obviously now I know way too many cricketers and I realise you're not like a cricketer. I, I know you mentioned your blog before, but you started an amateur blog while playing for New Zealand. I remember you being, if not the first international cricketer, certainly maybe the first regular international cricketer on Twitter, very, very early on, 2008 maybe, 2009, when, well before everyone's agent got them online. You had your own YouTube channel. You still have it, 108 at IOB, or is it IOB at 108? Yeah, 108 with IOB. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in some ways, you don't fit in with a normal cricketer path. You do a lot of things independently, sometimes rashly. You sort of throw yourself into things. And I can see why that meant that at times you didn't fit in. You didn't have a normal path into the game. Mm. And we mm. haven't even talked about things like you tried to fight the ECB to allow you to play as an English player because you married an English woman. You were there for that strike in New Zealand. If I had my wife have been Spanish, I wouldn't have even had to have that fight. <laughs> I knew you'd bring that up. Anyway. anyway. And then also little other, uh, other little things that have come through your game. Like That's why I started with the Scotland thing. Because, again, that's such an important thing. Just as T20 cricket's becoming a big deal, you get dropped from the New Zealand team when you probably, you know, with your hamstrings, T20 cricket might have been the way for you to make money over the next three or four years. And suddenly you've got this reputation of not being good at something because you, well, I was going to say you misread your own handwriting. You didn't. You got Watson Watson mixed up. All of that makes for a shambolic career where it's quite clear for anyone who saw you, you were clearly a very talented player and bowled some incredible spells and, you know, don't want to get into you sending off Ricky Ponting by accident. But I also turned down an IPL contract in 2009. You did, yes. To go and play for Leicester, I did turn down an IPL offer. And Ricky Ponting did miss out. You don't get to <laughs> 70 and not get 100 at Adelaide. He missed out, and I'll stand by that. Very true, very true. But my point is yeah, yeah, yeah. that... Someone who's now worked on both sides, you know, has worked with teams. You're almost the ideal person to work with players. You've almost been through every different aspect. Most players grow up in an academy system. As you said, in New Zealand, you go to a nice school with a school system. You end up playing underage cricket. You go to academy. You end up at your team. You then play international cricket early on. You have the normal ups and downs of a professional career. You have not had any of those. Your entire career is so sporadic and spasmodic in a way I sort of think about it similar to my writing career. Like, it's just like neither of us are really supposed to be here, which meant that mm. we've tried so many more things than other people. Mm. We've had to think about mm. things the way that other people haven't. Yeah. What I'm saying is that kind of makes you a perfect coach. 
So after everything you've been through, you now you finally found the place that you should be. I just caught up with a friend this afternoon. He works across the road from where I am in, in quarantine at the moment. And went downstairs, there's a couple of fences and you can stand and talk to each other like, you know, one of us is a, a chimpanzee in a cage kind of thing. That would be me because I'm, yeah. <laughs> so since finishing doing media stuff, and I think I had a, a part to play in my own downfall there by talking about things that shall not be talked about in commentary. So I went, just did some regular jobs, just regular, normal jobs that, that regular, normal people did. And I had a lot of time uh, driving. And in that driving time, it was, you know, one of the jobs where it was, you know, I was a few people in an office and I wanted to create an office environment that was going to be the best, that we were a small company, we were a small startup, but I wanted all of our decisions to be the best decisions that we could make. And so I wanted an environment where every decision was challenged. We're going to do this. This is what we wanted to do. And I wanted it challenged. And if someone came to me with an idea, I wanted to challenge them. And so to being able to drop the ego to end up with a better product, if that makes sense. You're not being challenged because it's a stupid idea. Let's make it better. How about this? And how about that? And so I always wanted to create, and, and I did, and create an environment where we could challenge each other and it was egoless. No one got hurt. And I had a lot of time thinking about those sorts of things, you know, what then would the perfect changing room be like? What are the things that you would embrace and, and absolutely reject in the changing room environment? And so in those years, I've got notebooks started, not finished, but at least three notebooks with pages and pages and pages of ideas of things that we never did. You know, like this one annoys me and it's one I want to, I, too late now. It, it's one that I've really wanted to keep close because I wanted to implement it and, and make it work. Is that the the line that we win more from losing? I hate that line. You know, I absolutely hate that line. I think we learn more when we win, but we don't analyze it like we analyze a loss. I hate it when you have the massive debrief after a loss. But when we have a win, you just have a well done, a well done, a well done, and, and have a beer. No, no. When you win, you debrief the snot out of that so that you know what reflexes were good, turn them into responses, what responses were good, and what was good, and where the bits were that either changed the game or kept the game going. And all the unnoticed things, you know, we'll talk about, you know, the, the BJ Watling things, you know, he will never get man of the match points, very, very rarely, you know. But in those wins, that's a guy that needs to be recognized so many more. And there's so many of those unrecognized things that happen in a win that never get debriefed, never get talked about. And if you're going to kick someone up the backside, you've got to pat them on the back. And I'm not here for um, a lovey-dovey changing room. I'm here for a caring changing room. But you've got to be giving as many plaudits as you are. You know, you've got to be better. And we don't debrief wins. And that annoys me. And so that's, you know, that's been one of those ones that I've just sat there and spent so much time thinking about how to debrief a win and how to make that time valuable. And to almost go, no, nah, we're not going to debrief a loss. We're just going to go, right, well done, well done, hard luck, have a beer, I'd have lost, and debrief the wins as if 
you know, let's dissect them. So I've got loads of those sorts of things that are, are not traditional, if you like. They are just, even just the change room philosophy, my coaching philosophy and, and those things. It ended up that there's a guy called Pete Carroll who's had some success. You know, he's just had a little bit of success with a team called the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> Within two years, he had won a Super Bowl having the Seahawks had never, ever even got to the playoff stage. And without knowing, I had pretty much written down his philosophy with no knowledge of him, no knowledge of the Seahawks, apart from knowing that they're an American football team, no knowledge of anything that could have linked me to him or overheard this. And it, I had written down pretty much his philosophy, which Ed Hawkins had written a book about. And he says, oh, I've just written a book about that. And I'm like, okay. So not only am I not the first to come up with this, <laughs> you, a friend of mine, has actually just written a book about it as well. And it's like, it was, it was kind of mind-blowingly frustrating, but mind-blowingly reassuring that here's a guy that took a team with no history and no wins and changed them. And I share a philosophy with him independently and it's, um, well, parts of it, a lot of it. And so I, got, I have a lot of these thoughts, you know, a lot of these, let's do things differently because tradition is tradition, but it's, it's got to be improving. And I don't think cricket has, um, change rooms still do things that they were doing 20 years ago just because it's tradition, just because those things were done. So there needs to be quite a, uh, not quite a lot of changes, but there's some changes that I think could make life a lot better. Thanks for coming on the podcast and good luck creating your own uh, legion of boom. Well, yeah, it's just to share the love. It's a, it's a group of animals that just love what they do and love each other and want to do everything they can to make each other's life the best. So, yeah, no, you're welcome. Good to see you. Good to chat. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. <laughs>